welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoyed the company of family, friends, time for yourself as well. Lots of lots of good Thanksgiving holiday wishes. I hope you enjoyed very much. And I'm glad you're with me. I'd be forced to endure the pain of epidermolosis bullosa if you gave me the blistering news that you missed this week's show. Thought Leadership. Peter Panapento and Antoinette Kerr co-authored the book Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits. They share their insights on how to build relationships with journalists so you get heard as the thought leader you are. Plus, other media strategies like crisis communications. This was part of our coverage of the 2020 Nonprofit Technology Conference. And content strategy. Now that you're an established thought leader, you need to produce multi-channel content that's relevant. Also engaging, actionable, user-friendly, and SEO-friendly. Also from 20NTC, Valerie Johnson from Pathways to Housing PA and Katie Green with The Trevor Project show you how. On Tony's Take Two, I'm still wishing you well. We are sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Here is Thought Leadership. With me now are Peter Panapento and Antoinette Kerr. Peter is philanthropic practice leader at Turn2 Communications. Antoinette is part of the leadership team of Women Advance and CEO of Bold and Bright Media. They are the co-authors of the book, Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits. Peter, Antoinette, welcome. Great to be here virtually, Tony. Yes, I'm, I'm glad we could work this out uh, among the three of us. Thank you. And uh, it's good to know that you're each well and safe in your uh, respective locations. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Social distancing in full effect. Yes. Okay. I, I, yes, I see no one within six feet of you. That's good. <laughs> Even though you are home. <laughs> We're talking about uh, thought leadership and media. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with you, Antoinette. We can, we can use our leverage thought leadership and use the media to, uh, to influence those who are engaged with us, our constituents, and even influence policy. So the media needs experts, and nonprofits are on the ground. They're doing the work, and they are the perfect folks to be experts in this conversation. Um, in particular, an emergency Peter and I talked about earlier about crisis communications. And in a lot of situations, the media is scrambling, looking for experts. If you have established yourself as a thought leader, which is what you should aspire to do, I know that Turn 2 does the work in helping people to kind of establish themselves as the thought leader in this conversation. But right now, we need people with good information and who can provide great stories, for example, and nonprofits can do that, and they can do that work. And that's why the thought leadership conversation is important. Most nonprofits don't see themselves needing to do that. It's not the first thing we think about. We think about fundraising, right? Right. Um, but not necessarily media friend raising. And so now's the time that you want to have those relationships and be considered as a thought leader. Because when there's news that relates to your mission, um, your call is more likely to be taken. Your email is more likely to be answered if there's that pre-existing relationship you mentioned. But if, if everybody in the sector is calling all the, all the media blindly, then it's just sort of a crapshoot whether they answer you or not. Or if you think about the media needing, like, you know, going to a crisis example, like the media needing a source or an expert. Yeah. And they don't want to quote the same person. That's, you know, something that I've learned from my media background and training. I've been working as a journalist since 1995. And, you know, one thing that my editors say, you know, don't quote the same person, don't quote the same organization. So in a crisis, people will call big box nonprofits sometimes, 
um, and they'll just see them as being the experts for a conversation. And that's why establishing yourself as a thought leader is so important. So someone can say, you know, I'm a unique voice about this. We have an example in our book, Modern Media Relations, where um, someone who, an organization that worked with children and families involved in domestic violence, became very important in the conversation when a professional athlete in, a, in Georgia was convicted of family violence. And all of a sudden that person was called upon to be on radio shows and talk shows and they became a thought leader, but they, they'd done the work mm-hmm. to position themselves as an expert. And so I know Peter, you, I know you have some examples as well, but we just kind of dived in there and, and didn't talk about the whole broad concept of thought leadership. Well, all right. Well, um, Peter, I was going to ask you, how do we start to build these relationships? Um, you want to, I don't do you want to back up what thought leadership is? Sure. Um, I'll start with thought leadership defined and that, and that's really um, the process of establishing one's expertise in a, in a specific area and, and, and doing it in a way where they are recognized beyond their own organization and their own kind of immediate networks as a, as an expert, as a thought leader, somebody who is, driving the conversation and really really helping people better understand uh, a key issue or a topic. Uh, so for a nonprofit or a foundation, a thought leader might be your CEO um, who, uh, or executive director, somebody who um, is at the front lines uh, and, and kind of is in a, in a position where they um, not only have expertise, but they have some authority in being able to talk with some gravitas about a, a, a topic. Um, but um, in order to kind of establish your credentials there um, and get recognized, you have to do some legwork beyond just having that expertise. You have to be um, you have to be comfortable talking about that topic. You have to um, you have to spend some time kind of building the relationships and the, and the, and the, the larger credibility that you are somebody who has something interesting to say and the expertise to back it up. Um, and uh, the more you do that, and you can do that not just through the media, but through your own channels and through speaking at conferences and, and all kinds of other things. Um, the more you do that, the more you kind of become uh somebody who is recognized and is called upon to weigh in on important topics or, or when news events call for it or in a situation like what, where we are now with, with the COVID-19 response, somebody who can kind of come in and bring uh, a voice of reason and perspective to what's going on around us. So you have to lay the groundwork. There, there has to be some fundamentals and you have to have your gravitas and you, you need to appear bona fide and be bona fide, not just appear. You have to be bona fide on the topic that you're that you're an expert in, or the the mission of of your your uh, nonprofit. How do you then start to when you have that groundwork? How do you then start to build relationships when there isn't really a need for you to be talking about the subject? Sure, um, there are a lot of ways to do that. One is that you um, you start to to build some personal relationships with media who are covering these topics, and you can do that either through you know, somebody on your communications team that helps you, or you can kind of do it yourself, but you can, you can start to show up in, in their coverage of stories by, um, by um, positioning yourself and and building relationships with individual reporters, maybe even when they don't need you by having an informational coffee or call so that they can get to know you and know what you stand for. Um, you can do it by your through your own writing and and public speaking and making those things available and accessible to the media, um, and you can you can do it through your own channels too. A lot of nonprofits have blogs. They have uh, they have their own podcasts. They have different ways where they're positioning their internal experts externally so that they're kind of talking about and, and establishing their credentials around around a subject and that's your that's your owned media right that's owned, your own that's media, your owned that's media versus earned media yes yes and and the value of that is that the more you're you're kind of demonstrating through your owned media channels your expertise you're not only building 
um, some greater uh, relationships and, and credibility with your donors and the folks who are already kind of in your network, but you start to show up when people are doing searches or when people are on social media and seeing stories and articles that are getting passed around, if they, they may see something you've written or talked about shared in another network and it, it sparks a light for them that you're somebody worth going back to when they need, um, when they need some, you know, somebody like you to weigh in on something. Okay. Um, Peter, I know you and Antoinette are both former journalists. Uh, so I'm going to uh, jump over to Antoinette for what, Antoinette, what, what, what do these, uh, outreach, I guess, calls and emails to, to journalists to try to build the relationship. Uh, what, what, do they, what do they look like? What would you suggest people are saying to, to try to get the attention um, to build the relationship? Not, not when I'm looking to be quoted because there's a breaking news, but to build the relationship Definitely. Definitely. Before, build a beforehand. So full disclosure, I'm a current journalist. Um, so Oh, current. Okay. Another, yes. I, so I, I still work for publications right now. Okay. Um, and so people contact me on Twitter and social media, which is a new thing. We talk about press releases. I'm a big fan of press releases. Um, yes, just full disclosure about that. But I still like for people to pitch me on social media, direct messages through Twitter. If I'm using my company profile, it's safe for nonprofits to contact me and say, hey, I have a story. I noticed that you're interested in this concept. It's always great when people know what I'm interested in, like when they're like, I, I noticed that you publish a lot of stories. Like right now I'm working on a, story, a series of stories about missing and murdered indigenous women. And so when people see, oh, I noticed you're publishing stories about this, and they pitch me on a direct message or um, through Facebook Messenger even, and say, hey, would you consider this, this story, and here's the angle, um, or have you thought about, you know, I've had other people reach out and say, I notice you're publishing these types of stories about, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women, have you considered other stories about violence against women, and it's always a really great connection for me, so I think just kind of knowing what the journalist is interested in is really important. Kind of understanding their angle. Sorry, y'all. Um, understanding their angle and just flowing from there and saying, you know, here's how we fit into this conversation is always a wonderful okay. topic. And so, um, so, so outreach by any of the social channels is is fine too. You, you're talking about Twitter and direct message, Facebook. Those are all. Those are all. Oh, it's okay? great. Yes, and okay. and people tagging me, like, I feel like if a journalist is using their uh, profile in a way that is professional, then you're safe to contact them and, ah, and okay. tag them in okay. that way. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Peter, anything you want to add to? Yeah. I think that, I think that is dead on about making sure though, that when you do that, you are, you are, you're, you're not coming with something that's off the reporter's beat or off of um, what's up, what, what you know is um, what they cover uh, uh, or the type of story they cover within that beat. Um, you could spend a lot of effort reaching out to, to every journalist you see on Twitter about your specific cause, but if they don't cover your cause um, and it doesn't relate to what they, what they do, then they're probably either going to ignore you or, or start to block you because you're, you're, you're kind of almost spamming them. So um, it's, it's important to be targeted with who you reach out to as well and, and make sure that you understand that journalist and their work before you, before you do your outreach and come at them with a, a pitch that they don't necessarily want. So yes, uh, I think it's really important to, to do a bit of that homework up front um, and respect that journalist time. And if you do that, and if you come at them with something that is actually on, on their beat and is of interest to them, um, then I think you have a much greater chance of getting their attention and getting them to want to follow up with you and, and help further um, the relationship beyond that initial pitch. Okay. okay. And Tony, can I share a pet peeve, like two pet peeves actually. Yeah. One is um, if I write about a nonprofit and they don't share the story, on their own social. It's just, it's heartbreaking for me. Um, a lot of times I have to fight for these stories to appear and I have to fight with an editor to say, this is why this is newsworthy. This needs to be here. And then 
Yeah. Uh, the nonprofit really doesn't share the story. And I right. think, well, you know, I don't write for my own, you know, just for it not to be shared. Um, and then the other thing is I love when nonprofits support stories that aren't related to their particular story. So I'll start noticing like one thing, um, Kentucky nonprofit network, for example, before they ever shared or were involved in anything that I was involved in, they started sharing things or liking things that I would publish as a reporter. And I didn't know anything about them, but I thought that was interesting. So that when they pitch something, then you're more likely to notice it as a, as a reporter, you're more likely to notice because you feel like they're really genuinely interested in the conversation. Even if it doesn't apply to them, you're still interested. So. Antoinette, where are you writing now? I am writing, working on a piece for Guardian. I am, for the Guardian, I am writing for Women Advance, which we have our own network. And then I write for Halifax Media Group publications. So I'm on the regional circuit doing all the fun things. Okay. Halifax is Nova Scotia? No, Halifax is a media group in the United States. Okay. So. Okay. They own a series of, they own regional newspapers across the country. So let's talk a little about crisis management. You want to, can you get us started with how you might uh, approach crisis uh, communications, Antoinette? Oh, I thought that was Peter's question. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, oh. so crisis communications. I think actually Peter is a really great person to talk about this. My crisis communications conversation really has shifted with what we're going through. So I don't want to make it so unique to our current situation. Um, so I'll let Peter start and then Peter, I can back you up on it if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Sure. I'm happy to do that. You. <laughs> Yeah, so um, with crisis communications, it's really important to not wait until the actu- uh, you're actually in a crisis to put your plan together. It's really important to, to have a protocol that you've set up when you're not in the middle of a crisis, if possible, to really kind of put together uh, some protocols for not only what you're going to say, but who's going to say it and how you're going to communicate uh, during that situation. So... Um, what does that protocol look like? One is that you um, up front, you designate who your spokesperson or spokespeople are going to be ahead of time. Um, and you spend some time ahead of that coaching them up in terms of what some of the key messages for your organization are, regardless of what the crisis might be. Some things that you would broadly want to try to reinforce and kind of a mood and a, and a tone that you're going to want to take with what you're talking about. Um, do that first. Do, second is that you would really want to have a, a, a system in place for how you activate that, for how you activate your crisis plan and your crisis communications. So that essentially means that you want to, um, you, you want to uh, make sure that you know kind of who, who needs to sign off on what you're going to talk about, who you're going to be involving in your decisions on whether you need to put out a statement, um, who, uh, how you're going to communicate and what different channels. The more you can make those decisions ahead of time and have your structure in place, the better equipped you are to actually respond during a crisis situation and be able to get a quick and accurate and uh, positive message out um, in, in, in a situation and often crises are not they're crises because they're not expected, but you can be planning ahead so that you, you are able to react quickly and authoritatively during that situation. You're, um, and you're, you're, you're compounding the crisis if you're not prepared. Absolutely. Now absolutely. You're scrambling to figure out who's in charge, who has to approve messages, where should messages go? All, all, which are peripheral to the to the substance of the problem. Absolutely. And in today's world where crises can really mushroom uh, not only in the media but on social media, the longer you're allowing time to pass before you're getting out there with, with your statement and, and yeah. your response to it, the worse, uh, the worse the situation gets for you. So you really need to position yourselves uh, to be able to respond quickly, to respond clearly, and to respond accurately. Um, and, and 
it's important to note that, you know, that planning ahead of time is really critical, but what you say in the situation is also critical too. Um, you do want to make sure that you communicate truthfully. That doesn't necessarily mean that um, uh, you, uh, you, um, Reveal everything. Reveal everything exactly. Yeah, you still but have, that, you, but that still the information that you do uh, the, that you do reveal is accurate. It's not yeah. going to come back to bite you later. Right. And it's not right. going to mislead people. You're talking um, about complicating the, the complicating the crisis if you're lying or misleading, uh, it, it it comes back. I mean, people investigate things get found out. You've absolutely, and I've and I've and I was rhythmically expanded your problem. Absolutely. And, and you'd be surprised how, how many times when I was a journalist that people, if they had just come clean and, and kind of gotten the truth out there right away, they may have taken a short-term hit, but their lives would have gone on fine after that. But the, the more you try to obfuscate or, or lie about the situation or, or try to, to spin it in a way where it, you're, you're kind of hiding the truth, the, the worse your situation is going to get. Uh, so be be in a position to be as transparent and clear and accurate as possible um, with that first statement, uh, knowing that um, in some cases you might have to say, you know, we don't know, um, right. but we'll follow up when we do know. Because right. sometimes a, a crisis situation is one in which, speaking of of one we're in now, we don't know all of the, all of the different twists and turns uh, the, the COVID-19 situation is going to take. No. Um, so, but, but rather than trying to speculate um, or, or, or in some cases, as we've seen some, some public figures do try to spin this one way or another, rather than just saying, here's the situation, here are our concerns, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Um, it, it, it compounds the situation. And in some cases it, it can be dangerous to people. Yeah. Internet, you want to, you want to back up a little bit? I did. So the, I think the statement, um, I love how people are putting forward these COVID-19 statements. And I think we need to have more statements like that. I mean, these statements are demanding and people feel like that, but I've, I'm like, we could do more of that. We could have, statements as nonprofits on issues, on public issues, public concerns, things that are um, emerging and urgent for people. I think about in the eastern part of North Carolina, because Tony, I know you're in in my home state. I am in eastern North Carolina. Yeah. So happy to have you here. And when we have um, hurricanes, when we have issues like that, if nonprofits would put out statements like they have with COVID-19, if they felt like they needed to say, here's where we are, here's what we do, here, here's, here's what we have to offer before, during, after, and just update them. You know, I feel like this crisis has brought forward a level of communication and, and helped people to see the necessary level of communication that we mm-hmm. need to have. But we don't have that all the time as nonprofits, and people are looking for that. So I feel like in the eastern part of North Carolina where we had, um, you know, 100-year hurricanes within three months of each other that right. we didn't yeah. think would happen. You yeah, know, what if people yeah. what if people made COVID statements like that? I mean, what if people – and so I'm just going to start calling them COVID statements, Peter. I don't, I don't have a better term for it. But what if we felt like we needed to make these types of statements when there's an emergency? And people yeah, interesting. Are looking, ah, all right, thank you. Thank you. Um, Antoinette, I'm going to ask you to wrap up with something that you said, which is contrary to a lot of what I hear. Uh, you said that you're a big fan of uh, press releases. I am. Could you, uh, oh. could you uh, take us out with your uh, rationale for why you're a big fan of them? I've heard that they're pretty much obsolete. From a journalist? <laughs> uh, I don't know. From a, a commentator. don't want to write them. Guests I've had. Guests I've had. All right. I believe that. I believe that. Um, so, yes, because I've been reading press releases for a long time, and I feel like the who, what, when, where, and how gets me past that part of it, then I can ask you all the interesting questions. So if you can give me that in a way that I can cut and paste, then I will not butcher someone's name like Miss Feltoni. Right. Martinetti <laughs> um, is yeah, more, more I, at risk. It might be a, it might be a challenge. So I can, we can get all of that out of the way, 
but a good press release gets me excited as a journalist. It brings me into the conversation. And if you aren't excited about your press release, I can probably tell on the other end. So let's okay. write a good press release. All right. Thank you. We're going to leave it there. That's uh, contrary advice, which, uh, which I love hearing. All right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's Antoinette Kerr, part of the leadership team of Women Advance and CEO of Bold and Bright Media. And also Peter Panapento, philanthropic practice leader at Turn2 Communications. And they are co-authors of the book, Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits. Antoinette, Peter, thank you very much for sharing. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us, Tony. Pleasure. Stay safe. And thank you for being with Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 20NTC. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. Well, as you heard, lots of ideas about the relationships, the relationships that will help you be the thought leader that you want to be, that you ought to be. Relationships leading to thought leadership. Turn to communications. They'll help you do it. Your story is their mission. Turn-to.co. It's time for Tony's Take Two. I am still thinking about you and wishing you well. I hope you had recovery time over Thanksgiving. If you're in Giving Tuesday, I hope you'll be happy with your results, or you are happy, depending when you listened. If you are, if you did, congratulations. Celebrate what you achieved. Take that victory lap. You deserve it. If you're not so happy, keep your head up. You know that you did the best that you could. Don't let it drag you down. You have other successes that are going to be coming, and you'll be celebrating those. So don't let a disappointment drag you down going forward. You have all my good wishes for your year-end fundraising this week and continuing. That is Tony's Take Two. Here is content strategy, which, by the way, we have buku buttloads of time left for. Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 20NTC. That's the 2020 Nonprofit Technology Conference. My guests now are Katie Green and Valerie Johnson. Katie is Digital Giving Manager for the Trevor Project, and Valerie Johnson is Director of Institutional Advancement at Pathways to Housing PA. Katie and Valerie, welcome. Hi, Hello. thank you for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's good to, good to talk to both of you and glad to know that you're each safe and, and well in, uh, in Brooklyn and uh, suburban Philadelphia. Glad you're with us. Your NTC uh, workshop was uh, content strategy for donor engagement from tactics to testing Let's start with you, uh, Katie. What what did you feel was the need for the session? What are nonprofits not getting, doing so well that they could be doing a lot better? Yeah, so we had the session this morning, same time as we originally had planned, which is great. We were able to give it virtually. And I think what a lot of donor content strategy is missing is simply structure. I think a lot of people don't know where to start, and they're intimidated by it. And we, Valerie and I, provided some real-life examples on how you can achieve a donor content strategy that does get you closer to your revenue goals. However, the tone of the presentation changed a little bit given how the world has come to be, our new reality. So we did talk a little bit about uh, the crisis and what it means for fundraising and what it means for content strategy under a tight timeline, knowing that Things are changing at a really rapid pace. So really just structure and storytelling are the things that we talked about in this morning's uh, presentation, which will be available for uh, viewing later. We're going to have a recording available for those who weren't able to make it. But yeah, that's what we focused on. Let's start with uh, part of the uh, a good strategy is using personas, user personas. Can you uh, kick us off with that, Valerie? How do you... How do you start to identify what a persona looks like and what's their value? 
Absolutely. So a persona is really like a profile or a character sketch of someone that you need to connect with um, and understanding their motivations and goals. So it's a way of segmenting your audience. And rather than sending all of your messaging out into the ether, trying to tailor that messaging to a specific demographic or a specific group of people. So for Pathways to Housing PA, we're actually still developing what our personas look like. We have an idea of what it looks like, but we want to dig some more into the research and analytics side of things to see who exactly is supporting us right now and what um, ties they have in common to help us build those profiles. I think Katie might be a little bit further ahead of us in developing those personas, so I'm going to toss it over to her. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, user personas are something I've been doing uh, throughout my career. Uh, I worked at an agency before I came to the Trevor Project, so I was able to get a lot of industry knowledge on how we create user personas and user journeys. But what we did when we started looking at our end-of-year campaign for last year at the Trevor Project, we made sure we carved out some time to conduct a little bit of an audit of what our donors were looking like. Where were they coming from? What could we track? What couldn't we track? We found out we had a lot more questions than we did answers. So in order to get user personas, something that's really important is tracking and understanding where people are coming from and where their first and last clicks are. So because of our ability to use Google Analytics and source code tracking protocol, we did get a lot of tracking during end of year that will improve what our user personas look like going into future campaigns. But now we're going to be able to better tell what is actually inspiring people to give. What is the moment where they're actually clicking that donate button? What is the first thing they're seeing that's starting their relationship with the Trevor Project? So that's what we've been doing. What are, what are the pieces of a persona? How, how granular do you get a, is it where they live to what they read or what, 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 yeah, give us some like depth of this thing. Absolutely. So the main important piece of a persona is to know what their needs are. So you can have a persona that's as general as this is a donor. They need to know how to give. That's a persona. But what you'd like to do is get a little bit deeper in being able to tell what the values of that persona are, what's what's the name, what's the age, what's the characteristics, what are the opportunities, really, you know, I like to create fake names and uh, really go into it, use stock imagery so that you can try to connect with who this person might be. You're really giving a face to a name and a, and a value to a person and you want to look at what donors are looking like. So, for example, for the Trevor Project, we have a lot of one-time first-time donors, and we have a lot of people who come in, they give their first gift, and I'm trying to find where they're dropping off, right? What is causing that? So I maybe create a persona that is a one-time user that's not really convinced they want to give again, a one-time donor. Um, They may be young, they may be, um, like, within our demographic, which is under 25, the youth that we serve with our crisis services and suicide prevention services. Um, So you can get as granular as making a name and an age and a demographic and a location and what devices they're using. I think that's a big one. Is this person usually on their mobile? Are they usually on desktop? Um, What channels do they typically like to look at? Twitter, you can get as granular. Uh, Email, are they just looking at your website? So, you know, it, it should get as detailed as you can, but I would encourage people to get really creative with it. If the more detailed you're able to get, it's just a just a more clear picture of a donor that you're looking to target. Just make sure it's someone you actually want to target and not someone you're going to be, uh, that wouldn't actually be coming to you. Like maybe Bill Gates isn't going to be coming to uh, a nonprofit's website to donate. Um, But you can look at what those specific donors might look like that are more realistic for your campaign. Okay, right. You're, You're basing it on what's realistic, not what your aspiration is. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I think you can be aspirational aspirational in some facets of what you're doing. I just think it has to be somewhat grounded in, in you know, a realistic approach. We do get asked, I get aspirational myself when I'm creating donor personas when, you know, I am looking for major gifts. I am looking for people who are willing to process a $15,000 credit card charge. And there are people out there that, that do that. So when I do my donor personas, they may not be the number one target of my campaign, but I do want to consider what those people are interested in as well so that I can 
personalized content for them to the best of my ability. Okay. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is diversifying your donor base. So in looking at who's giving to Pathways to Housing right now, they're mostly middle-aged, college-educated white women who prefer Facebook and giving on a desktop, um, which is fine. And that's definitely one category of people that you would want to be supporting you. But Philadelphia is an incredibly diverse city. So if those are the only people that we're getting to with our messaging, then we really need to think about diversifying our strategies to build new donor profiles for people who don't all look the same. Okay. And then once you have a, a bunch of uh, personas and profiles, I, I mean, it sounds like you could have uh, 10 or 12 really different ones, different, um, yeah, different characteristics of people, different types of people that come to you. And, and like you said, Katie, even people who leave, you know, the, the, you want to capture them back. So, so once you have these, Valerie, then you're trying to communicate to them, but how do you, how do you turn your communications into targets to, to these personas? So you really want to think about building content specifically for that persona. So you might be doing a campaign um, that you want to hit a couple of different personas with, but you're going to tailor that campaign specifically to each persona and deliver the message to um, a specific segment of that campaign. So if you're going to do a mailed campaign, um, you want to think about how you're putting together that letter and what you're writing into the letter and how you're addressing the donors for each of the different segments or each of the different personas that you've put together to really help craft a message that's going to inspire them specifically to donate. Okay, right. Like Katie, like you were saying, you know, yet you know what's important to them. Um, but that stuff is this is very uh, uh, amorphous to, to try to you know. It's not just what do they give and how much do they give and what time of year do they give. You know, what's important to them? What do they value? This is this is difficult stuff to suss out. Yeah, one thing our uh, co-presenter said this morning, Marcus, was that donors are smart and they're savvy. And with the advent of the internet and all of the various channels that you can communicate with people now, they know what they want and they know what they want to hear from you. And if they're not hearing from you what they want, they're going to go find someone else who's going to provide that information and communicate to them the way they want to be communicated with. So fundraising and marketing for nonprofits right now looks very different than it did maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and, and donors know what they want now. Okay, so it's worth your trying to uh, suss out all this amorphous information as, as best you can. Okay. Um, Katie, is there anything more you want to say about uh, personas before we, we move on to being multi-channel? Let's go on to multi-channel. I could talk okay. to the personas all day. Oh. All right, all right. Is there anything, uh, I don't want to leave anything important out, though, for nonprofit. No. Okay. I think we've covered the main point. Okay, uh, what's, what's, what's important about, well, I think we all know why to be multi-channel, uh, but how to coordinate those messages. What, what's, your, what's your thinking there? Yeah, I can jump in here. So I think what people often don't do is they don't coordinate messages cross-channel at the right time. Um, that's what I've been seeing a lot with just my industry research. I mean, I'm always looking at what everybody's doing in the space because I want to be part of the best. Uh, but they say, they being what I've heard at multiple conferences, is that there's a rule of seven, right? So as a non-donor, let's say I'm scrolling through Facebook, I need to see and ask seven times before I'm actually likely to give. So yeah. if you're seeing that ask seven times on Facebook, that means it's seven posts. That's kind of a lot. And that's going to have to be spaced out through a certain amount of days, weeks, months even. So if you're just increasing all the channels that you're presenting that message on, so let's say I'm seeing it on Facebook, I'm seeing it in my email, I'm seeing it on my Instagram, I'm getting a paid ad for it because I liked it on Facebook, that's going to shorten the window of which I see seven points of that call to action. So I'm going to be more likely to give if I'm seeing it in a wider spectrum on the digital space than I am in just one channel. So making sure that you're saying similar things, but that are custom to what the channel is providing, like social media has, like paid ads have a certain amount of characters you can use. So um, making sure it's optimized for what channel you're using, but still with the common thread is really important for increasing your conversion rate. Okay. 
Now it's a little clearer to me why I see so many ads for the uh, uh, pickpocket proof slacks. Uh, <laughs> I see them across all kinds of different channels. Um, I'm not, I'm hardly on Facebook anymore, but um, I, I, I see them when I'm, I go to websites and I'm reading articles and because one time, I don't know, I, I swear it was like three years ago, I was browsing through these like CIA approved slacks with 14 pockets and it's all supposed to be pickpocket proof or something is you know the $200 slacks or whatever they're you know but I've trying to get you seven times I've I've been seeing the ads ever since yeah and uh I I don't know I'm not even sure that if I bought them the ads would stop maybe is it it sophisticated (laughs) enough no it's not right they would keep up right because now your brother needs a pair or whatever all right Mm -hmm. yep Valerie anything you want to you want to explain about multi-channel and how how important it is to reinforce and be consistent I think the biggest thing for me is if you're starting from scratch and you're really trying to develop content and put it in the right places, um, you really want to be thinking about who your audience is on those channels. So for LinkedIn, the messaging that you're putting out is going to look a lot different than what you're putting out on Facebook. Most people use Facebook recreationally and they use LinkedIn for professional relationships. So the type of information that someone is seeking on LinkedIn or more likely to respond to on LinkedIn is a lot different than what they're more likely to look for or respond to on Facebook. Um, So for us, we make sure all of our job listings go up on LinkedIn and all of our industry specific information goes up on LinkedIn um, just to kind of show our expertise in the area. But when we're posting to Facebook, we're talking more directly to people that we know are supporters of us and want to do tangible things to support us. So the messaging is different, even though the information is really the same. Okay. Okay. Again, yeah, consistent, but consistent, but, but different, maybe different format even. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's other formats, you know, content papers, you know, white papers, um, again, depending for the right, you know, for the right channel, uh, research. Um, do either of you use um, media? Uh, uh, working in uh, working through thought leadership in developing thought leadership in media, media relationships. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a local media outlet here in Philadelphia called generosity and they are focused on um, nonprofits and social enterprises and people who are making positive impact in Philadelphia. So they're super open to having folks guest post um, or write op eds for them. Mm-hmm. So we've utilized that outlet a couple of times. Um, actually, just last week, um, our CEO wrote an article about the opportunity for kindness in the era of coronavirus. So it's something that she actually wrote to communicate to our staff members and let them know what our stance on you know moving forward was going to be. And we thought it was something that would be beneficial not just to our staff, but to the community at large. So we passed it along to them. They posted it as an op-ed, and that gave us um, a little bit more bang for our buck for something that we had already written. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Katie, are you doing much with uh, earned media? I am not. The Trevor Project is, but uh, Katie Green is not doing that. Okay. okay, okay. (laughs) Our comms team handles that. Okay. Um, Let's talk about some some analytics. I mean, how do we know whether we're being successful uh, and where we need to, where we need to tweak or pivot? Katie, can you, can you get us started? Absolutely. So analytics is very hard for a lot of nonprofits because it's such a scientific based skill set. And, you know, that's something that when I first came onto the Trevor project is the first thing I implemented was our source coding protocol. It's so important to know where people are coming from so that you can actually optimize, but we AB tested and continue to AB test absolutely everything. We do it through uh, our website. We do it through email. We do it through our paid social and to see how things work. I think really we just, test absolutely everything. Things you think you know, you don't. And that's what I keep learning through testing is what you think works today won't work tomorrow. And we retest everything. A time of day test, for example, isn't going to, for a send, for email, isn't going to be the same after daylight savings. It's not going to be the same as the seasons change. 
and it's particularly not the same now that everybody is stuck at home. So, you know, they're testing and optimizing really what you know is working. It just requires retesting, reoptimizing, and testing literally. Everything. Could you could you give some more examples uh, besides time of day? Uh, mm-hmm. What uh, examples of things you test? Oh, absolutely. So on our website, we tested. We have a little. Um, call out box with questions on our donate form. We tested the placement of that. Is it better to have it right up next to the form, underneath, directly on top, so it's the first thing people see? Um, so we test placement there. We test what photos we use a lot. Does a photo of somebody looking sad versus somebody looking more celebratory and happy? Um, we test a lot of pride imagery because we serve LGBTQ youth. We want to see if pride imagery actually helps get our word out there. Um, we test uh, colors a lot because our, our brand color is orange, which is uh, can be very cautionary, but we see, you'd think that, oh, it's your brand color. Of course, everybody's going to always respond to it, but that's not really the case. Like sometimes they like our blues and our purples and our greens when it comes to CTA buttons. Um, Gosh, I mean, I can tell you every test we've ever run, sender tests, um, using graphics versus photos on the website, uh, you know, the size, the width, the height of our light boxes, the width of our donation forms, the amount of buttons we have. It just, the list goes on and on. (laughs) I heard one that just made me think of uh, just one small example of what, riffing off what you just said, was testing the text inside a button. Yeah. Instead of just uh, donate or like uh, re- review or something, you know, be more be more explicit about what the um, what the action is that you're asking for instead of just a right. single word, a little a little more descriptive. Okay. Yeah, testing CTAs is something that we do a lot, um, just it, to give people some ideas. I think one that can be really helpful when it comes to fundraising is seeing how your donors react to the word give and the word support and the word donate. So. It's all the same thing. We're asking you to support our mission, to give to us, and to donate. But those three words have very different feelings when you're reading them on your screen. So that's one of the biggest tests we ran. Um, But, yeah, I would recommend always testing CTA when you have a new one, especially. What was it? Was it Blue that – or or Change.org? I think maybe it was Change.org. Started calling it Chip In. Could you chip Mm -hmm. in? I think that's Act Blue. Was that Sounds like blue, blue, classic chicken? Act Blue to me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, Valerie, can you talk us through some metrics? Uh, you're the director of institutional advancement. What what numbers do you look for to decide how you're doing? Uh, we look at a lot of things. So we're looking at the click-through rates um, on our emails and on our posts to actually reading to the bottom and clicking the links that we're providing. Um, we're looking at how many people are interacting with things that we're posting on social media and whether they are um, enjoying it or not based on how many people are interacting with it. Um, we do a lot of surveys too, so talking to our donors directly and asking them what kinds of things they want to see, what kinds of things they don't want to see. Um, I know Katie's doing a lot more with metrics than we are. So, um, this is my friendly reminder to smaller nonprofits where there's just one person trying to do all of this. You don't have to recreate the wheel. (laughs) Um, so you can look at an organization like the Trevor project that does have the staff who can look at all of these things and do all of these testing and all of the metrics and see what's working best. And they say invitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So you can look at what they're doing and then borrow it. Um, so for an organization like like me that has a smaller staff, um, we're doing a little bit on our own, but we're also looking a lot at what other nonprofits are doing and assuming that they're taking the time to test things and we're kind of, you know, copying what they're doing because it's obviously successful for them. How do you learn from them? Do you just create a build a relationship and then ask what, what kind of metrics do you look at? Sometimes. And sometimes it's as simple as going to the Trevor Project website's donate page and seeing where they place things and what they name their buttons and what giving levels they're putting up there. Um, Because, you know, you're never going to be exactly the same as another organization. So you definitely want to take a look at who you're using as an example and use someone who's doing similar work or in a similar location to you. But at the end of the day, there's only so much you can learn through testing. And after that, you're just going to have to dive in and do something. So if you don't have time for the testing, you can do a quick search of what everybody in your industry is doing and kind of take it from there instead. 
Katie, uh, since everybody's stealing from the Trevor Project, what, uh, what I'm, I assume you knew Valerie was doing this. I didn't, but it's, it's so, such a compliment. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> it's no, because it's, you do a great job. That's why we're looking at you. Oh, gosh. What, what do you want to add about metrics? Um, I think I just want to reiterate Valerie's point that there are so many nonprofits where one person is doing this. Um, I'm the only person on the digital giving team. I'm the first person they've ever hired to do digital giving. Um, I'm still a team member of one, but you know, I do have the support of a very large marketing team that helps me with creating all of the tests that we do. And anyone can tweet me, email me, whatever. If like any nonprofit ever wants to connect, I'm always an open resource, but uh, metrics are increasingly uh, important, just critical to donor content strategy. So, since you're offering yourself as a resource, uh, do you want to share your your oh, yeah. email and or your Twitter? You don't have to give your email if you don't want to. Yeah, maybe Twitter is probably the best way to reach me because okay, I'm that? trying. I'm trying to learn how to tweet more um, as a digital person. I feel like I need to do that. It's at Katie Sue Green, like one word. So it's K A T I E. S-U-E-G-R-E-E-N. Katie Stew Green. Green, just like the color. No E at the end. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, Valerie, you want, to, uh, you want to wrap us up? Some, some parting thoughts about uh, content strategy? Sure. Um, since I am kind of representing the smaller organization here, I just want to remind everybody that you're doing everything that you can. <laughs> and it's everything that you're doing is important. So don't try to do everything at once. Really pick one thing to focus on and get to a point where you're doing that well and comfortably before you try to add more. Um, listening to a podcast like this or going to a presentation like the one that we did this morning is overwhelming in the number of things that you could be doing and it makes you feel like you're not doing enough, but you are. And just tackling those small hills one at a time is much, much easier than trying to climb the mountain. That's very gracious, uh, very gracious advice. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, that was uh, Valerie Johnson. That is Valerie Johnson, Director of Institutional Advancement at Pathways to Housing PA. And with her is Katie Green, Digital Giving Manager for Trevor Project. Thank you very much for sharing, each of you. Thanks so much. And thank you for being with Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 20NTC. In two weeks, Traffin Heckman with his book, Take Heart, Take Action. Next week, I'm working on it. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs>